Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to Three Identical Strangers, the science behind the story. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. In this podcast, we explore the scientific, social, and historical themes that emerge from the acclaimed CNN film, Three Identical Strangers. In this episode, we're going to talk about the fraught history of adoption in America. Today, adoption is a mainstream practice that is mostly celebrated, but that doesn't erase the painful and difficult family dynamics that impact members of the so-called adoption triad, adoptees, adoptive parents, and birth parents. On the line to take us through some of this is adoption historian E. Wayne Karp. Wayne, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. I think of adoption, and I think, you know, this, this very sentimental moment, right? Grateful adopt, uh, adoptive parents, beautiful baby, and sort of heroic birth mother. Is that a fair depiction? <laughs> um, I think so, yes. Um, but it hasn't always been that way. It was stigmatized uh, for, for, for periods of time. Yes, it was. There was, believe it or not, an emphasis on the preservation of the biological family. Um, social workers had this an, as an ideal, and it became axiomatic that you don't split up um, a family members. You mm. try to keep them uh, together. Um, and what happened was Americans' cultural definition of kinship stigmatized adoptions as socially unacceptable. Why did it start to change? There was a demographic revolution uh, that resulted um, in adoption practice. Married mothers uh, placed their children in adoption agency as a result of divorce, death, or desertion. By 1965, adoptions in the U.S. numbered 142,000, which was really high. I want to talk a little bit about now. And, and the activism by many adoptees to make their own records public. Um, first of all, what kind of records are we, are we talking about? And, and why are they secret, I guess, in the first place? I mean, my understanding is the United States is one of only a handful of nations that actually seal adoption records. Why, why are they sealed in the first place? The key to, to what happened in terms of secrecy was um, a psychoanalytic a theory began to dominate a social work. And adoption agencies began to deny a birth mother's access to any information because they invoked studies that claim that unwed mothers were neurotic or psychopathic, uh, i.e. by definition. It's so really rooted in psychoanalytic sort of theory and, and beliefs. Let, let, let me ask you for a second, Wayne, if I can, about your, your current research, which, which centers on the bioethics of separating twins through adoption for the purpose of researching nature versus nurture. This is obviously the, an issue at the heart of the film, Three Identical Strangers. 
Tell me about it. Tell me about your research. I'm finding out that there there have been a lot of adoption twin studies that uh, the one uh, mentioned in uh, the film is uh, that discusses this project is uh, not the first one. And there have been, uh, there, there are like four major ones, but there are at least 50 uh, in which um, researchers have looked at twins, separated, and have tried to figure out um, whether um, nature or nurture is, uh, in the, is the most influential. And if we go back a ways, what we find is that adoption agencies separated siblings. Those four-year-olds and six-year-olds would come in and they'd uh, find, you know, during the Depression, let's say, for example, that, that there were no adoptive parents that could take on two children and that they would be forced uh, to separate them. On the other hand, something I didn't mention, the very records in adoption agencies were created because they believed that when these children grew up, they would come back. Uh, There could be no secrecy back then. The average age is four years old. They know they have uh, parents. They know that they have siblings. And they expected the children to come back. And as I said, they were cooperative in trying to locate them. I think that that historical context is is really important. Thank you so much for for taking me through this history. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Bye-bye. Next, a love story of sorts. A best-selling author and mom tells her adoption story. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Welcome back. 20 years ago, Renee Denfeld adopted her first daughter from the foster care system in Oregon. Since then, she's written a lot about the adoption experience, and she joins us now. Renee, you there? Yes, I am. Thank you for having me on. Thank you for joining us. Um, I'm really, really excited to speak to you. And and before we start, people who who have not read your work, they, they should. And they will be reminded, like I was as I read your writing, that uh, I'm really thankful there's people like you in the world. Uh, the way that you approach the world, the way that you think about things. 
um, it's it's just really important. So thank you for that uh, to start off oh, with. Thank you. Your, your, your modern love essay in the New York Times called Four Castaways Make a Family uh, details how your family came to be. And for those who haven't read the piece, why did you choose to adopt from the foster care system in the first place? You know, uh, it was interesting. I got to be in, I think, about my mid-20s, and I realized I, I wanted a family. Uh, but for any number of reasons, you know, I just didn't have the urge to do it uh, biologically myself. I uh, came from a, a very traumatic history myself, and I knew there were a lot of kids in foster care. As a matter of fact, there's about half a million children in foster care. I knew they needed homes, and I was really comfortable with the idea of, of taking in children that had traumatic histories because that was my background as well. So I thought, um, you know, there's kids that need homes, and I want to be a mom, and those two things actually came together perfectly for me. What, what, was, it, what was it like? I mean, you're a young person at the time. You know, you're still young, but you're young at the time, mid-20s, when you, when you adopt this first child from, from foster care. You, you, you have, you know, your background, your reasoning, but what was it like for you then? You know, uh, you know I think we all know ideals are one thing, um, but reality is different. Um, you know, the first months of parenting just really hit me um, hard. Um, you know, it's a, any parent can tell you, um, you know, it, it's a lot of work. And taking in children that had uh, special needs histories, uh, children that required not just the usual parenting, which is hard enough, but a lot of extra love, extra attention, extra therapy. Uh, you know, it, it was, a, I think, to be honest, it was, it was a shock to my system at first. It took me a while for me to kind of get my sea legs. Um, but it ended up being, you know, I often tell people it's the best choice I ever made. It was a, just a profoundly transformative and redemptive journey for me as well. The article, again, uh, four castaways make a family, and you, you guessed it, um, Renee adopted two more children, so three children you've adopted. How are they doing? They are are just doing amazing. Um, if you let me, I would brag constantly <laughs> about them. They're all uh, teenagers and young adults now. Um, you know, if you met my kids, you would probably never guess um, that they came from foster care, you probably wouldn't guess their history unless they chose to tell you, which would be absolutely fine. Um, you know, I don't think there's anything shameful about who they are and where they came from. Uh, you know, I, because of my own history as well, I really wanted my kids to feel that they deserve to be loved. Uh, when they were growing up, I would often say things like, you know, I love you not despite what happened to you, but I love you including everything that's <laughs> happened to you. Uh, so they've, they've turned out to just be just stellar, amazing young people, very successful, very happy, very well adjusted. It gives me goosebumps a little bit, Renee. You, you, uh, in the article, you say that um, I had learned to enjoy the process with these so-called difficult children and that the most important therapy is permanence. What do you mean by that? Absolutely. I, you know, it's interesting. Even physically, my children came to me, they were very... Uh, small, physically underweight. Uh, they had been in really good medical foster homes, but um, you know, one of them had a diagnosis of, diagnosis of what's called failure to thrive. And you know, there's been studies on this, but I think we just kind of know intuitively in our hearts that, that children need permanency. They 
permanency. They need love. They need to know that somebody's not going to show up at the door and put them in a car and just take them away. And that's what happens to children in foster care over and over again. Um, they live, I think, often in just kind of a low-level terror, a panic, that in any day they're, the people they love and trust are just going to vanish and they'll find themselves in a new home with a, a garbage bag of belongings at their feet. Um, and I wanted to end that cycle. I wanted my home to be the last home. And um, once my children realized in their emotional core that this is their forever home, hmm. uh, they just blossomed. <laughs> you, one of the things that we, we really wanted to talk about in this podcast was the, the secrecy surrounding adoption records. And we just heard from a historian who, who talked about this. What, what has been your experience um, in terms of working with the foster care system around records? You know, I'm, I'm here in Oregon, and it's a complicated subject because, of course, each state is different. One thing we desperately need is more federal oversight, and I think we need federal laws, so there's some degree of consistency, um, and people aren't, it's not just a matter of state by state. Um, I've seen a, a tremendous amount of growth myself. Uh, when I started uh, being a foster adoptive parent, there was still a lot of secrecy. And for instance, uh, having contact with the birth family after adoption was actually really discouraged. I was actually uh, one of the first parents ever in our state to pursue an open mediated adoption with um, family members because I felt like my kids needed and deserved to not lose any more people forever. You know, I wanted them to be able to have safe and appropriate contact mm -hmm. with other family members. And also, they all have their records. I was, I'm very much an advocate of that. People deserve to know their past. They deserve to know their story. They deserve to know where they came from. Uh, there's nothing shameful or wrong about their past. And, and you know, we kind of need to get away from these messages that these are things that should be kept secret. Yeah, it's 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 interesting, and this you know this issue really strikes at the heart of the film, Three Identical Strangers, as well. You you're currently researching the effects of the experience of being separated from siblings in adoption for a forthcoming book. So so what is is there a way to describe what is this like for kids? You know, I can only speak from my experience, and you know, I think it's important to acknowledge that adopt, adoptees need to to you know speak for themselves and to. We need to hear their voices. Um, I can say that in over 20 years of, of raising kids adopted from foster care, as, as well as I, I've done other fostering as well, that being separated from your siblings, what I've witnessed is I think it can be even more traumatic than mm -hmm. losing your parents. Um, our siblings are the people that we expect to grow up with. You know, there, there's some part of our hearts that knows my brothers, my sisters, um, these are people that, you know, we, we kind of just instinctually expect to have at our side. We know someday we're probably going to lose our parents. But to be separated from your siblings, I think, is, is just a, a really traumatic thing to have happen. All of my kids have lost um, siblings in foster care. Mm -hmm. They were separated as well. And... Having to, you know, helping them recover from that has been really, I think, 
um, informative for me for just seeing how deep that wound can go. The, the, when they are asked to describe themselves, now your three children, they, they, do they, they, they call themselves siblings, right? Yes, they do. And it's, um, you know, they're not biologically related, but they're certainly all, they are siblings. And I, you know, I've had people ask me, especially when they were younger, they, they would say, well, are, are they, are they brothers and sisters? And, and I would answer, well, they, they are now. <laughs> <laughs> um, and they're, they're just as close. Um, as any other siblings out there. In fact, they're incredibly attached and bonded to each other and to me. Um, and they also have attachments with their family members, including siblings that they were separated from, um, that we've actually spent some time researching and finding and investigating uh, to locate my children's lost siblings, the siblings that they lost in the foster care system. You, you, um, it's again, it's it's remarkable work, and I just re- reading your your essay and hearing you talk, it's it's um, you know, I'm, I'm really thankful there's people like you out there. W- one of the experiences you talk about may resonate with a lot of adoptive parents, which is to ha- have to feel the inevitable question, "Why didn't you want your own?" And to this, you say, "They are my own," which I thought was great. <laughs> I mean, it's just it's perfect, and and but there is this stigma around adoption. Right? Is there still a stigma? How do you yeah. navigate that? There's still a ton of stigma. You know, I was just, and I was honestly really surprised by it. I wasn't expecting it. But just the number of times people have, you know, even the language people use, they'll say things like, remember my, my oldest son, uh, a kid at school said something to him like, well, that's not your real mom. Mm. And my son, Tony, I think, had answered back something like, well, she's certainly not imaginary. <laughs> so, um, but you, you hear this a lot. Not, you know, real parents, um, they're not your own kids. You know, didn't you want children of your own? And there's a lot of stigma around it. And I think that's part of the reason a lot of adoptive parents have fear over contact with birth family, they have, you know, we're, we're told that we should be afraid that, that love is some sort of contest or it's territorial. And I think that's part of the reason there's, there was so much secrecy in the past. A lot of adoptive parents were told to feel afraid that they, you know, had to keep these secrets so their children would love them. And, and nothing could really be further from the truth. And I dare say that Tony sounds like he's taken after his mother. A bit with it, with that response <laughs> that he gave. She's certainly not imaginary. Yeah. Um, Renee, yeah, interestingly enough, he's planning on adopting from foster care as well. Is that right? Is that right? Yeah. Oh. Well, Renee, uh, thank you so much for joining us. What a pleasure. Thank you. Absolutely. Pleasure on my part. And thank you all for listening to this episode on adoption. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Join us for a bonus episode with the director and the producer of Three Identical Strangers. The one big decision I made at the start of making the film was to to see everything from the brother's perspective. So most of the information in the film is revealed to the audience at the same time it was revealed to the brothers. And don't forget to watch Three Identical Strangers on January 27th, only on CNN. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 